you've read the episode titled, it's about the goddamn Beatles. Why did I want to talk about the goddamn Beatles? Well, I suppose, uh, since, uh, this has become just me on the podcast, there used to be another guy, Steven, we love him, uh, he had to go do dad stuff, so it's just me now. The format, when there's not a guest, which frequently there isn't because I don't remember to book them, and I am very antisocial to begin with, even though there are many people I would love to book on this show, I just don't put in the effort. So I have to now mine, <laughs> mine these like big parts of my personality, find out what is it exactly that makes me tick. And I, if I were to come down to one thing, it's the Beatles. It's uh, who saw Inside Out. Everyone saw Inside Out. I'm, I'm of course making reference to a children's uh, movie, but of course the Beatles are sort of children's music in a way. So I feel it's appropriate. We're often introduced to them as children, but uh, yeah, for a lot of us, you just hear the Beatles really early at age six, and that's it. You're Beatles forever. There's some quality about their music which is able to get into their minds of very, uh, of very young people. You know. It's like hard to understand Steely Dan when you're six years old, but you can you can sing Bungalow Bill when you're six years old. You know you can't sing, uh, fucking Black Cow. You know what six year old understands Black? I want to meet the six year old that understands Black Cow. He's probably weird, or she. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, actually no. There was that uh, video footage of the TikTok going around of like the small girl child who liked Michael McDonald a lot, and that was very endearing. So, yeah, who knows what kids like? Who the fuck knows? If you have a Steely Dan child, though, that's sort of unnerving. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay to have a Beatles child. But, yeah, Inside Out. Remember in Inside Out, if you've ever seen it, you have these islands of personality of what uh, uh, composes a a person. In, In the movie, the little child, she likes hockey, and, you know, that composes an essential part of her personality or her goofiness composes. That's an island of her personality. And I feel like uh, for me, uh, the Beatles uh, composes a lot of that. Just just so much of my mind is occupied by the Beatles at any one time. Uh, just got it hooks into me really early. And there was something about it uh, which forever colored my view of art and you know what is good and you know is whimsy or fantasy good you know what are my uh, political alignments as a result of the Beatles because you can really you can get into a lot of stuff through them because there were four guys uh, who each contained multitudes each were interesting in their own sort of way even though they had the same voice they didn't actually have the same voice uh, I can do them all now. I learned it from Jess Harnell, who did Wacko Warner, uh, which was a composite character of all the Beatles. But all the Beatles are slightly different. You know, they all got their own personality. The smart one, the cute one, the quiet one, and Ringo, <laughs> who I guess was the funny one. Uh, even though they were all kind of funny, that was part of it as well. But Johnny sort of here, he's sort of nasal in his nose there, and he's sort of harsh and disturbing well paul is up here he's just a whimsical little elf guy and you know he's going around i love nature you know i I just wish we could explore our feelings in a way i've done acid lots of times you know four times i've done acid (laughs) uh george is off here somewhere he's sort of got a mid-voice in the corner you know he's he's there on his sitar learning about love you too 
and Ringo is down here, of course. Every day we get older and wiser, and nobody knows. And I, I can't do Ringo as well because I don't have that naturally deep voice. But that those are all the Beatles there. If you ever wanted to differentiate the Beatles, they're sort of uh, there's the high Beatle Paul. There's the two mid Beatles who are sort of uh, off in harshness. John is harsh, harsh mid, and uh, George is mellow mid, and of course Ringo is the lower one. And that's all you need to know about the hierarchy of the Beatles. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that's uh, part of it too, where um, they all have their individual legacies and you can map your personality onto one of them. You know, you'd choosing which Beatle you enjoy the most or which you identify with the most is, is akin to choosing your starting Pokemon. It is a very significant choice. It displays whether you're a sap or in my mind, you know, uh, the, the Looney Tunes director, Chuck Jones, uh, Bob Clampett and Tex Avery, that's a very important choice in every cartoonist's, uh, mind. But, uh, yeah, for, for the Beatles, I gotta say I'm a Paul guy. You know, I go back and forth year after year for the same reason I like Chuck Jones. I just, you know, I like the cuteness. I like the whimsy of it. I think, there are lots of reasons why people are annoyed with the Beatles, uh, chief of which is the political hypocrisy of John Lennon, uh, maybe, and the whimsy that if you don't like whimsy, if you don't like the sort of bleary-eyed fantasy world of the English, then this isn't for you. You know, you're never gonna like that. Um, but um, there is a quality to English music, you know, going all the way back to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in the in the uh, 20th century, you had people like uh, uh, Benjamin Britten or, or like Edward Elger um, or even like Gustav Holst, uh, who is, you know, he's he is an English composer, even though I think he's an English composer. Let me look that up real quick. Got to look up Holst real quick, even though he has a yeah, he is an English composer, even though he has a uh, non-English name. He is actually an English composer. But going all the way back, you know, in time to like Henry Purcell, you know, that, that's what's interesting about English classical music is that there's this huge gap in time between relevance of English composers. Like you have in uh, the 16th and 17th centuries, you have this, uh, you, you have people like Purcell who are doing their music on their harpsichords and their virginals, and it's this very early classical music. And uh, who is the cold song by? I love the cold song. That's... Uh, uh, I first heard it of Klaus Nomi's version, uh, but uh, that is a that is from the King Arthur opera, the 17th century King Arthur opera, which was by Henry Purcell, and I really love the cold side. But yeah, even back then, and from that big gap in time of relevance of English composers in the classical canon. Um, Basically, until Elgar, basically until the 19th century, there there were composers that made their name in England, like Handel. But yeah, very few English composers for some reason during that time. And there were also, you know, yeah, for some reason in the into the 20th century, guys like Percy Aldrich Granger as well. Um, but there there was something noted, and maybe why they weren't taken seriously at the height of Romanticism. But there there is sort of like a quality to English music which is sweet and treacly, and catchy, you know, that's the, that's the weird part of, 
uh, sort of the general quality of music. That's not all music produced on that weird island. But as a general course, there seems to be a melancholic obsession with fantasy because it is overcast all the time. You're always just looking out your window with a little cup of tea and thinking, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I escaped into a world of fantasy? You know, so that that sort of general quality, but also like that that pop quality, that like thing that Holst had, if you've ever listened to the planets where it's like these really catchy melodies for some reason. They have that, you know, it's really zippy. It stays in your head. It's, you know, not these sort of, long explorations of of like form and technical uh, mathematical ability like Bach or like even Haydn or like these big expressions of texture like Berlioz it's these really it's these real catchy riffs you know even expressed in in the folk compilations of uh, Percy Aldrich Granger I dare you to hear the lost lady found and not be humming yeah so so that pop sensibility is like thoroughly endowed in the English spirit for the, you know, the reasons I mentioned that sort of like, oh, we're constantly beset by Vikings and, you know, we hate our world because, uh, you know, they're just clouds, you know, <laughs> you know, they're just clouds over us and our sky is gray, but really there could be fantasy and not sugar pies on the windows. And so if you don't like that quality, if you're instantly repelled by that quality, you know, you're never going to like the fucking Beatles. I for one, uh, understand that melancholic sweetness, that melancholic sentimentality. I, for one, uh, am imbued with it. I don't know what it is. I, I just enjoy it. Uh, I like the sort of... Uh, I, I think it carries forth into enjoying shit like Lord of the Rings as well or Terry Pratchett or Neil Gaiman, all of which I have enjoyed. It's a, and, you you know, you can feel like, you fucking nerd, yeah, yeah, sorry. And I'm into that fucking sound. Or Doctor Who. Doctor Who is super emblematic of that. And, you know, the king of that shit is fucking Paul McCartney. You know, all of the other Beatles, you know, you want to say that all the other Beatles aren't as whimsical as Paul, but all the Beatles are pretty fucking whimsical. They're all like... They all got the, oh, what if we lived in a better world of... <laughs> you know... John used different metaphors, but it was still that same, you know, uh, intense longing for a world outside of yourself, uh, uh, a world outside of sort of this narrow vaulted dome that the clouds have formed around you if you're living on this gray island. <laughs> and Liverpool's like that, you know, talk about that, that weather, you know, forming around you. And that's what uh, sort of colors your perception of things. Um but yeah, of course, that sentimentality is in, in all the Beatles. Look at Strawberry Fields and uh, fucking Penny Lane, where Paul McCartney and <laughs> and John Lennon were trying to out-sentimental each other. Into, who can con John, who do you think can conjure the best childhood memories? And John's like, my childhood memories will be deeper and more sensuous, while yours will be a set of... Paddington bear-like imagery and Paul will be like well mine is just as relevant as yours and say eventually we will come to blows ideologically <laughs> um, and uh, so, so you know to, to, to pretend like John Lennon was the more deeply serious Beatle I always feel is exaggerated because he's he's just got he's got his moments of the English sweetness I mean constantly like Paul but he would also write songs about beating your wife, 
<laughs> you know, and then he, you know, that's the other thing that people, of course, I should uh, bring up immediately, is that's one of the all-time facts that people who are trying to spoil the Beatles for you. Oh, you know, John Lennon beat his wife. You know, John Lennon beat Yoko. Uh, and uh, of course, yeah, I yeah, he he was fucked up. You know, he was fucked up with Cynthia Lennon as well. He was you know fucked up with his children. But you know, I, I don't. I don't think he was like, you know, that shit is in the regular realm of fucked up. And I think if you become the most famous person in the world, <laughs> like, you don't understand. Like, my incredibly small, 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 tiny amount of Twitter <laughs> fame, like, makes me megalomaniacal on, on many occasions where I shouldn't be. I absolutely shouldn't be. But if you are literally, like, the most famous person in the world, like, Michael Jackson levels famous, and it doesn't fuck with you a little bit, um, you know, not saying that, you know, obviously John Lennon had agency over his actions and, you know, what he did was bad, but I think uh, ultimately, and, you know, that that underscores the tragedy of his death is, uh, you know, he came out of the 80s, you know, he beat heroin, you know, he was... He was uh, sort of free of a lot of vices. He seemed to have mellowed out and sobered up and gotten sort of nicer. And, you know, that's when he gets shot, of course. And, you know, I think that sort of comes through in the Double Fantasy album, which is a mellow as hell album. It was a very easy listening album. You know, Double Fantasy is fine. I, I <laughs> like it's not, it's not my favorite of the John Lennon solo projects. It's very, very lots of dreamy a cheesy reverb, which is fine. I like, you know, I can't say I hate cheese, but uh, I love Paul McCartney. But th- that's also what I'm saying is John Lennon is a cheesy guy. You're going to get cheese with John Lennon, no matter how you slice it. And Double Fantasy, I believe, was his uh, uh, was his form yet to come of ultra cheesy John Lennon. And I sort of uh, am very sad that we never got to see more of ultra cheesy John Lennon because I like that shit. I would have liked to have seen more like sax solos like if had john lennon got on to make another album in the vein of double fantasy there would have been crazier sax solos i just know it i just know that would have occurred hopefully uh <laughs> but i really like uh yeah i think the reason why i like paul is because to me the spirit of the beatles has always been that like get lost in sort of this insular fantasy of your own creation that's cobbled together from the memories of uh, the intrinsic geographical memories of your childhood. You know, I think the, the the figures of the local figures of Liverpool loom large in, in their mythology. uh, And that's what sort of makes it so lived in and real, even though it's a fantasy, it is an urban fantasy. In fact, as you know, as I sort of last episode, I was talking about, uh, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about what tickled my gourd in terms of uh, uh, JRPGs and urban fantasy, and it's the same thing with the Beatles. I just realized it's this, uh, it's this sort of world where this vague magic exists, but within the terrible backdrop of Liverpool. But there's always a yellow submarine just around your shoulder. Ready, you know, the magical mysterio waiting to take you away, which is a very scary sentiment, frankly. I don't like anything where they're, like, coming to take me away. <laughs> and that lyric, I guess, has embedded itself in my head. 
uh, <laughs> for years to come um, because uh, uh, I just, they're coming to take you away. Take you today. Um, that's one of the more uh, disliked Beatles album is, uh, is the Magical Mystery Tour album um, along with the Yellow Submarine soundtrack album. Uh, I, I want to defend both of those, if I can. They're, they're actually some of my favorite Beatles albums. I'm just going to start out. That's how I'll start out right away. Controversy. I actually really like both Magical Mystery Tour and the Yellow Submarine soundtrack album. Obviously, Magical Mystery Tour, less reviled than the Yellow Submarine soundtrack album because it's it's pretty solid. Everybody sort of... Uh, enjoys the back half which is just a compilation of their very best singles at the time uh but uh i really like the the front half too i like the the goofy theatrical sort of uh quality of that i also you know i saw that movie when i was way too young and i did not understand it but it held my attention Uh, I guess I like these two because they're associated with movies I liked that I watched as a kid. I watched all the Beatles movies as a kid because, you know, that's parents like. And I, I didn't really understand Hard Day's Night as much because it's it, it, there's something about it that's not as kid-friendly because it, even though it's a fantasy, it, it, it's more grounded and it takes place in reality. Uh, whereas Magical Mystery Tour and, you know, Yellow Submarine are just straight-up fantasies and cartoons, basically. So one is a literal cartoon and one is a live action cartoon but uh i really liked it as a as a a sort of enjoyer of that 60s 70s sort of psychedelic animation style also contemporary to that time was stuff like the point which i really enjoyed as a kid which of course ringo Starr was all over and uh and uh you know like a or halloween is grinch night you know the shit that i uh, that's that's the type of like animation that really ingrained itself in my, or like the phantom toll booth or something like that that's the shit that really got into my head as a kid and i consider yellow submarine and magical mystery tour as sort of a piece with those films somehow at least in terms of uh uh childhood core uh, uh alex you know <laughs> childhood core is the terrible word that I'm sure has already been coined, but I, I also just spontaneously thought of it now. Uh, but yeah, fucking let's let's start with Magical Mystery Tour. Let's start with these sort of oft these more overlooked Beatles albums because everyone knows you know the, the fucking White Album and Abbey Road and you know Sgt. Pepper's. But who what, who thinks of Magical Mystery Tour is the first Beatles album they think of? Um, yeah, I I really uh I I guess, you know, part of why I like Paul too is because it, it, he's easier to understand as a kid or like the depth of Paul is easier to to sort of grasp. I mean, not really, but uh, uh take a an emotional song like For No One uh compared to uh you know sort of uh, the deeper material that john was writing at the time not i'm only sleeping that's that's a song i really liked as a kid because it's like oh john wrote a song about how he's so sleepy (laughs) but say like uh uh john's sadness uh song from that era was uh hey, you've got to hide your love away which uh, for some reason held my attention less as a kid 
then something is uh, sort of a much simpler sentiment in a way is for no one. And I guess that's sort of what Paul was good for, writing these things that uh, could be articulated to literally everyone. It's why, you know, my first memory of a concert as a child was being three years old and my dad taking me to a freaking Wings concert. And I was into it. I, you know, I remember being into it as a kid even though I didn't recognize any of the Paul McCartney solo songs because I, I recognized Band on the Run, maybe. Or maybe I'm exaggerating this. I have no real memories from when I was three, but I remember being taken to a freaking Wings concert. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, we got Magical Mystery Tour. We got Your Mother Should Know, which I'm always you know humming to myself. It's the dumbest, most insubstantial Beatles songs, but somehow it is the dumbest, most insubstantial Beatles songs that hold my attention and get into my head the most, which is also one of their wonderful qualities. Even the fucking shit suck Beatles that you fucking hate, like Bungalow Bill, it's like you're just humming to yourself merrily, hey, Bungalow Bill. <laughs> I love that shit. It's so good. And your mother should know that. Let's all get up and dance to a song. Never come on come on you gotta you gotta love this you know if you don't like spats if you don't like walking down a staircase slowly in a white tuxedo with your voice you know you're not gonna enjoy this but frankly i enjoy both of those things we need more spats in this world um i i guess the what i was also going to articulate late about the simplistic emotional world of paul mccartney was uh the the second track on the album or the, the one that as i had it was the fool on the hill which is like as, as a kid, because of that very direct, you know, sentimentality, that sort of EastEnders-style sentimentality, that, oh, no, we're looking over a hill, and everyone thinks I'm stupid, but really, I'm the smartest one of all. <laughs> That's how I felt, you know, as an arrogant child, you know. It's like, oh, I'm an arrogant little gay child. I am the fool on the hill. Everyone is mocking me, but really... They are the ones that don't understand. I am the ones with my head in the class, day after day. And it has that really Hobbit-like flute theme. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what it is about that shit, but it's like, I love that goofy shit so much. I don't know what it is. I love that goofy shit so much, which is why Paul is my favorite Beatle. Uh, I guess as you've experienced my like if Ween is one of my favorite bands obviously I love that goofy shit so much that's actually <laughs> that's actually what I wanted to say another thing I wanted to say about Ween Ween is like the Beatles if the only two songwriters were both Paul McCartney <laughs> which I, I sort of I enjoy as uh, yeah definitely I will always gravitate towards the goofiest Beatle of course I will which you know some people think is Ringo and Ringo's pretty goofy, but he didn't write a lot of songs. And, you know, the songs he's featured on are, you know, fine. So it's hard to measure him up to the other Beatles in terms of which songs I, I really enjoy. And, you know, every as everyone knows, you know, the Lennon-McCartney songs are credited to both of them. But you can kind of tell which one of them. Sometimes they wrote songs as a duo, like Getting Better, where Paul McCartney, he wrote the song Getting Better. Oh, it's this, oh, this song really needs something to spice it up. And John Lennon was like, how about a lyric where you used to beat your woman? And it's like, all right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that was the collaboration on Getting Better. That's, I think that's, I hope 
I'm not lying about that. I think that's an actual true story. That's the lyric that John Lennon contributed to one, which was the weirdly out of place with this this song of this very Mary McCartney song, getting so much better. Out of the middle, it gets really serious. So, you know, the the little uh, sitar that they have going on the background just rings out and he says, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the... Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> It just, it just read it right, right into the woman beaten right there, uh, and you know that's yeah. Of course, we all know the Beatles misogyny songs. <laughs> we all know "Run for Your Life" off of Rubber Soul. You know, you better run for your life if you can, little girl. Hide your head in the sand, little girl. Catch you with another man. That's it. I am going to hunt you. I'm John Lennon. I'm, I'm hunting you down with a knife. <laughs> Um, you know, which which also dovetails back into, um, didn't you know John Lennon beat his way? Yeah, and he also wrote a song. He also wrote some problematic songs as well. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess the reason why people point out John Lennon's problematic songs as well is because there there's a, a view that he was hypocritical, uh, a view that he espoused a sort of high-minded political philosophy while just sort of being a rich gadabout. Um, which, you know, sure, you know, how much have any of us done? And I'm sure <laughs> the, the, the bed in, you know, he uh, seems sort of like hippie-ish and obnoxious, but frankly, you know, he, he was speaking out against Vietnam in a time where doing so could get you fucked with. And, uh, they, Nixon did fuck with him <laughs> for it, you know? So there were repercussions to his somewhat, um, you know, seemingly nowadays ineffectual activism. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it meant something. It sort of meant something. You know, I'm not saying it was, you know, totally effectual or anything. or Like it raised awareness to the degree that it ended the war or something like that. But it's, you know, not as inconsequential in action as people might think, given historical context. Uh, I guess it's just sort of annoying because people also find John Lennon, they also associate him with hippies, and they just find hippies generally are vaguely annoying. Um, and they associate him with uh, that, the, the Two Virgins album cover of uh, him and Yoko nude, uh, and then I see photoshopped images of their ass cracks getting larger, which is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and people are uh, also, you know, why not? I'll mention, I'm just committing to this sort of rambly, free associative style of talking about the Beatles. I'll talk about fucking Yoko. I like Yoko. Yoko is cool, dude. You know, and she's the layoff of Yoko. You know, people say she broke up the Beatles. She did not break up the Beatles. Brian Epstein dying broke up the Beatles because they lost, they lost the 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 Jewish gay guy that was holding them together. You always that was the secret to their success. They had a Jewish gay guy, just like Scooter Braun <laughs> with Justin Bieber. I don't know what Scooter Braun did. There's people are dropping him as a talent agent. It seems like he did some nefarious stuff. But you know, I don't know what Brian Epstein did. I hope Brian Epstein didn't do some some nefarious stuff. Um, but he tragically died in 1967, which sent the Beatles into tumult, and they were all trying to get their own managers in and. Uh, you know, that, that's really what ended them way more than Yoko. 
like Yoko just happened to be there at the wrong time and she was associated with uh, what people saw as John Lennon's turn towards a more uh, pretentious or obnoxious style of expression further away from a pop sensibility and more towards a, a, a sort of experimental art quality. Um, and people think that's, you know, lamentable because it, it results in stuff like Revolution 9 on the White Album, which is a track that some people skip. They're not into sound collages. I personally think it's a great fucking sound collage. I love Revolution 9. It's fantastic because somehow they've done like experimental style like Stockhausen music and they all knew about Stockhausen. They were like, yes, we've heard Stockhausen. Yeah, we know about Stockhausen. We've definitely heard that before. Um, so they're, they're doing these experiments with music at the time, and uh, they managed to capture that quality of the English sweetness, but in this experimental sound collage, where it's, you know, what are the, what are the sounds that John Lennon chooses? Children playing in the distance, uh, little BBC jazz riffs that he probably heard on the radio as a child, you know, all these sort of melancholic, childish musings, you know back to this sort of wistful time when fantasy was more easily accessible, which is, I think, uh, you know, part of why you enjoy it as a child. Uh, <laughs> I've got a long way off from Magical Mystery Tour, but let's talk about, you know, speaking of John and John's sense of whimsy and what I feel like when John did whimsy, he really showed up because he did Eye on the Walrus, which is fucking great. I fucking love I Am the Walrus. Fuck you if you don't like I Am the Walrus. It's a great song. He's the walrus. He's the Eggman. Goo-goo-goo-joob. Which uh, uh, allegedly, according to legend, he wrote this song as a troll. Uh, because P he realized, oh, they're analyzing a song lyric. They're, they're analyzing me song lyrics in schools. That sort of stupid. I shouldn't be analyzing the Beatles lyrics. So I'm just going to do a bunch of surrealistic imagery. And they can have at it analyzing that. Sitting on the cornflake, that's dumb. I'll put it on there. And uh, uh, unwittingly, in his sneering arrogance, he managed to cobble together a series of fantastic, wonderful images uh, that I love to this very day, and I loved as a as a kid, even sort of the slightly horror ones like yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. Um, and even, you know, in, in, in this attempt at surrealism, he still lands on these sort of hallmarks of English sweetness somehow. <laughs> yeah, people like think of Paul McCartney as the corny beetle versus no, they were all corny. <laughs> they were all very corny men. They were all very sentimental guys. That is that is the secret of the Beatles. That is the hidden secret of all knowledge and the Beatles. Um, of course, there are, you know, Flying, which is a, a, a track in the middle. It's just an instrumental track, but uh, loved it as a kid because it's got that st stupid theatrical quality. Uh, <laughs> Blue Jay Way, sort of spooky. I liked Blue Jay Way. Uh, that's all I have to say about Blue Jay Way, really, is sort of spooky. That was George's contribution. Um, and yeah, in the back half, it has Penny Lane and All You Need Is Love and Baby You're a Rich Man and all these, you know, uh, fantastic tracks right at the end of the uh baby your rich man is going back to brian epstein as may have been written about brian epstein and john lennon 
uh, is alleged to have tormented, slightly tormented, you know, just, you know, made his jokes. It's like, you're a gay Jew, Ryan Epstein. Uh, and there are some takes where it's a baby you're a rich man too uh, John Lennon would say baby you're a rich Efsler Jew <laughs> about about Brian Epstein I don't know if this is true or not I shouldn't be I shouldn't be saying this but it's probably the reason why Brian Epstein took his own <laughs> no he didn't take his own life I think it was I think he OD'd I think that was the cause of his death uh, which is sad, but you know, that's, that's sort of my overview of, uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Less hard to defend, not, I don't, I, I don't know if anyone will call it their favorite Beatles album, but definitely, um, the Yellow Submarine soundtrack is the hardest to defend, uh, Beatles album because it contains a couple songs that, you know, have appeared on other albums and then a bunch of the George Martin incidental uh music which for some reason receives poor reviews from people but um i don't know i always thought it was sort of great uh you know everyone has uh who is the fifth beetle there are so many people who are the fifth fifth beetle Stu sutcliffe billy preston but uh george martin of course is a guy that comes up with it. so much of the beetle sound is defined by his string composition, which I think, you know, I, I mentioned the, the classical tradition of like Elgar and Holst, but I think, you know, that's what he was really borrowing from. Uh, and, and that is the sound which really defines a lot of the Beatles composition. I mean, you know, even going back to Purcell, you know, think about In My Life, how that fucking harpsichord, actually, it's not a harpsichord in my life. It's a sped up piano that's made to sound like a harpsichord, which is a, I don't know why they did that instead of using a harpsichord, but that's the studio trick, you know, you, you know, it's, it sounds better this way somehow, and it does, it sounds great, um, and, uh, so you have those musical cues that get filtered through this even treaclier pop sensibility for, uh, the incidental soundtrack music in, uh, the Yellow Submarine movie, but I, I don't know, maybe it's just because I watched it as a kid and it burned into my brain. I'm sure that's a big reason for it. But I fucking love the incidental, treacly-ass George Martin soundtrack music. And I love the back half of Yellow Submarine as a result of it. And you know what? You know, Some of these songs are often uh, touted as uh, the worst Beatles songs. People don't like Only a Northern Song. I think Only a Northern Song is one of my favorite fucking Beatles songs of all time. I'll go out in a limb for only a Northern song. I'm crazy about this goddamn fucking song. I think it's fucking cool as hell. You know, I was speaking before about how I enjoyed the Beatles' approach to sound collages and stuff like that um, because they managed to even somehow bring a pop sensibility, that sort of catchiness and sentimentality um, to, to this, you know, real, uh, free jazz, also the, the, this free jazz sensibility as well, which I thought was really cool, and is, uh, you know, that sort of jazzy, you know, wailing trumpet quality is no more apparent than on, uh, only a northern song, and it sort of prefigures my enjoyment of stuff like, you know, Sun Ra and Albert Eiler, because I'm sure just hearing that fucking crazy-ass dissonant trumpet was like, oh, I sort of like this, something about this is, is getting to me at a core level um 
and uh, or like the the plinking celestas that are in the background, and it's I really like the the cacophony of it. I always thought that George Harrison crafted a really good fucking cacophony there, a really pop forward catchy cacophony, and I sort of like the melody about how it's uh you know this sounds wrong. The you know it it sort of it's it, it presents to you the challenge of unlistenable music at an early age which i thought is a very uh, sort of cool thing to do for george harrison and george harrison would later you know go on to create lots of fantastic unlistenable unlistenable electronic music like wonderwall music um uh big walls of sound off of the the weird zapple records uh which I, I think only had two releases, both of which were noise releases, which are really cool. Listen to George Harrison's noise work. Listen to John Lennon's noise. They made noise music. It's cool that, like, these massive, you know, the the Taylor Swifts of their time in their off time, you know, when they're doing solo stuff, made fucking noise music. You know, you may hate the Beatles. You think they're uncool or treacly, but they they were the last. They really liked music. They really appreciated the music, they didn't just do one thing. They, you know, <clears throat> so uh, that was cool of them. And I like that that filtered into only a northern song. And I like, because it's only a northern song. I liked it. I like the melody. I love Hey Bulldog. I love It's All Too Much. George Harrison gets two fucking great songs. Because they, you know, it's like, oh, this, who cares about this fucking cartoon movie soundtrack? We'll give George a couple of songs. And they're both. Great! They're both fantastic George songs. I love both of them. I love It's All Too Much. Uh, of course, uh, Altogether Now, one of the more annoying Beatles songs. I still like it a lot, but <laughs> that's, you know, talk about one you can understand as a kid. You know, that I think that one was made expressly for the children who they assumed would be watching this movie because it was a cartoon, and they were right. Um... I can talk about uh, the fucking... I'll talk about the the Yellow Submarine movie uh, because I really fucking love that movie. Uh, the, the designs of Heinz Edelman are unparalleled. Uh, I forget who the animation director on is. I remember he was a Canadian fella, George something. I, I, wanna, I should get his name right because he was also very important to the success of that movie uh george dunning george dunning it was a canadian fella george dunning uh it's just yeah constantly surrounded by george's the history of the Beatles is a history of various george's but it's um a a beautiful movie uh and sort of captured uh, i'm sure define my future taste for movies i sort of like movies which are just a series of vignettes you know, which have a loose plot connecting them, but there's sort of uh, uh, just the series of scenes which are connected in sort of this fantastical quality, um, which is sort of, you know, that that's sort of the natural format of, of these Beatle movies up to this point, where all of a sudden there would be a break in the movie where you'd have this surreal performance section. Uh, so... Um, they, they always had that sort of vignette-like quality, but that, you know, filters into my love of movies like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Boonwell, or, you know, other Boonwell stuff probably colored my love of surrealism, or, you know, even The Beach Bum by Harmony Korine. I'm sure the vignette style, the loosely connected Shaggy Dog vignette style was influenced uh, by my early love of uh, uh, that sort of loose style of this movie. Um, 
where there's a plot, you know, they got to stop the Blue Meanies, who are Nazis, you know, at one point in the movie, Max says, we could go to Argentina, which is very funny that the Blue Meanies, they're Nazis, you know, and they're taking the gray out of the world, the Beatles got to return the the color to Pepperland through music, through harmony, as is usually the thing, you know, I I love that's like, that's the stock uh, plot of your music, uh, of your music theater, uh, your music film, which is like, oh no, there's someone who's preventing us from rocking, and we must use rock to stop it. You know, that's like twenty one twelve, where the 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 temples of Syrinx are preventing us from rocking. We must use rock, or that was the the abandoned who life house project where it's like the 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 powers that be are stopping us from rocking you know or i'm sure that was i think that's a bunch of sticks is like you know they're stopping us from rocking you know uh so yeah yeah. and uh but you know school of rock they're stopping us from (laughs) you know sometimes you just need to fucking rock out or in the beatles case to do nice sort of circusy harmonies Uh, in order to restore uh, the color to Pepperland and stop these nefarious blue minis. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of the sequence uh, at the beginning where everyone's getting turned to stone is fucking horrifying. I hated that shit as a kid. You know, getting turned into a statue, one of my least favorite. I hated that shit when I saw that shit in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, and I hated it uh, when it happened in Yellow Submarine. I don't like the idea of being turned into a statue it is a metaphor for paralysis. All of those statues were aware. They were sentient. It's terrible. I guess it's also a metaphor for, of course, the, the blue media, the depression is depression as well, I suppose. But uh, also they're Nazis. They're depression Nazis. They're, they're goofy, queer-coded depression. I don't know if they're queer-coded, but I like the idea that Max and the head blue media are fucking... Uh, they have he, he has this little John Waters mustache, you know. Maybe that's why I like the blue. Yeah, no, they're queer coded. Yeah, they're definitely queer coded. He's he's always lisping like him from Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> so maybe that's also why I enjoyed it because they they eventually befoul a gay villain, but the gay villain is forgiven in the end, and he is allowed to participate in the end psychedelic jam of it's all too much, which is nice, you know. He is not discarded, even though it was implied he was sort of Nazi-like. Uh, <laughs> we want we don't need to analyze this movie uh, any further. Actually, there, there's a lot of body horror elements to Yellow Submarine. Also, the scene where uh, they're all aging rapidly in the sea of time, I I always found distressing, and they're dancing around with their beards. I always found that it's like, no, I don't want them to die. If they keep aging, they're gonna die. <laughs> For some reason, that was the first thought in my childhood mind. But I guess, you know, that's sort of why I like the movie, too. You always like, you know, some of those classical animated movies where there's more apparent peril, you know, there's there's more, you know, disturbing shit because they weren't thinking about how disturbing it was. They were just like, sure, kids like this, whatever. You know, now nowadays I think we think more about what is going to be traumatic to children before we write stuff. But back in the day, you just had Roald Dahl being like, yeah, a bunch of kids get fucking horribly mutilated in a fucking chocolate factory. Fucked it. And we loved it as kids because, you know, it's like, yay. You know, I understand violence. You know, in old Looney Tunes cartoons, you just see Sylvester just putting a gun to his fucking head all the time. And I watched that as a kid. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, I, I'm not traumatized by that. So... What I'm saying is we need more cartoon characters threatening, sui- <laughs> threatening suicide. 
and that's what I ultimately come out of this. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to rep the Yellow Submarine, an unpopular choice in the Beatles can. Not my favorite Beatles. You know, if I'm I'm being honest, you know, neither Yellow Submarine nor um, Magical Mystery Tour are my favorite Beatles albums. Uh, but uh, I, if I had to say uh, which one was my favorite album, it's it's sort of a toss up between Abbey Road and Rubber Soul. Uh, what I like about Rubber Soul is it's that perfect bridge between their early sound or their later sound. Uh, Revolver is, you know, I feel fully engrossed in that later sound. Some people say Revolver is that bridge, but um, I, I think I like that sort of uh, more pop quality. of a, 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 Not pop quality, but it's like, so who, who are the Beatles' big influences? Like Elvis, Little Richard, the Everly Brothers. More than anything else, I think the Beatles were copying, you know, more from their skiffle roots, they were just copying the Everly Brothers. Like these really sort of up-tempo, uh, especially in their early days, these up-tempo pop songs with these really tight harmonies. You know, that was the uh, that, that was the game. And so at Rubber Soul, they're at their most Everly Brothers, you know, <laughs> in a certain way. Or they had sort of perfected that Everly Brothers style of songcraft which I think is evident in I'm looking to you. Where did you go? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, all the Paul songs are fucking, you won't see me as well as, uh, you know, I feel like, a, a sort of, uh, the a Britishification of that Everly brothers craft, but that, that's still that root of the up-tempo tight harmonies, you know, uh, really sort of, simplistic fragmentary melodies that are easy to catch on to you know that's sort of uh, uh the root of a lot of them um if, if i were to single out one influence as to who i think the beatles are most influenced by it would be them which i think they would say in their casual admission also you know everybody you know all the rocks buddy holly they loved who doesn't love buddy i'm sure you know uh, phil Spector, who they eventually worked with who was problematic guy phil Spector, you know but we love him anyway i mean i love all of phil Spector's old music can't beat that shit can't beat that wall of sound shit can't beat the ronettes but he did murder a woman so <laughs> so you know we'll we'll chastise him for that you know how come how come you know you you don't you say you like the beatles everyone brings up uh uh john leno you know john lennon beat his wife no one says phil Spector also tangentially associated with the Beatles. Oh, you know, Phil Spector killed a woman. And you know, no one brings that up. You know, how come? You know, how come they always focus on John, you know, not killing? <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm digging myself a hole. Yeah, John John Lennon did bad stuff. But, you know, he, I, I hope to God um, we are more than just the worst things that we do, right? You know, it's sort of... I don't know if it, the things that he did are within the realm of forgiveness for you. I can't... I, you know... No one can forgive him except for the uh, people he did that shit to. So yeah, I don't really care about it. I think it hasn't... And, you know, everyone draws a line of separating art from the artist, right? You know, sometimes there are things that people do that are too bad that will forever uh, color your view of that art. You know, you can't listen to that rock and roll part two song the same way. Uh <laughs> I guess, unless it's good enough, you can just be Michael Jackson, and, you know, you can have the most horrible allegations leveled against you in the world, and I'll listen to want to be starting something, and it's still good, you know? It's, I don't know why. 
I don't know why I can put it out of my mind for Michael Jackson. The songs are too good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry about those kids. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't be going down this train. But I think that's true. You know, we all have, we all sort of dither about, you know, what is okay and wasn't okay when we analyze the biography of an artist versus their art. And I think it's okay to do that. I think people are like, oh, you have to be death of the author, or you have to be like, you have to uh, cancel people if they've done anything wrong. You know, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. You could, you could sort of pick and choose. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you, you can, it's okay to be sort of inconsistent with that shit, in my view, because I want to believe, and I don't know if this is true, this is an ongoing debate, but that art, there, there's a sort of place called the art space, which uh, it's sort of this extra dimensional world where uh, our thoughts can be sublimated into expression. And through that expression, we can create a better composite of what we are feeling. And what we are feeling is not intrinsic to us. What we are feeling is a combination of what we're feeling, but also what we're pulling out uh, from the world. You know, frequently someone like Mozart or is reading about Kawabata Makoto of Acid Mother's Temple today, but they describe the process of making music as if the melodies exist already in the atmosphere and you're just plucking them out of the atmosphere. So I think that sort of um, uh, communing with the the sort of uh, collective unconscious, as I don't know if I'd use that phrase exactly, but you know, the, it is always a conversation between you and literally everyone else in the entire world and who you're influenced by. You know, that is sort of the great beauty of art. So in sublimating your thoughts like that, you can kind of ascend to the art space in some ways, and your personality or your personal failings don't matter as much compared to, you know, the feelings that you were able to extract from the universe at large, you know. Uh, you were a medium for that exercise, and you may have been an imperfect medium, but uh, you, you may have succeeded at conveying that emotional quality that universal emotional quality that we all strive for and i think you know john lennon by all evidence achieved it even even <laughs> in spite of his failings uh so you know and you know i i struggled with that at first of course oh your your favorite guy he did something fucked up and when you first start thinking about that shit at like when you're a teenager in your late teen years or in college it's like oh no the guy i like did something fucked up then as you get older, you're like, yes, yeah, yeah, I don't care, you know. It wasn't. It was pretty fucked up, but it wasn't like that fucked. <laughs> Which is something you say to yourself a lot <laughs> as you start dithering on the art you like. So who knows? Who knows what's right? I'm not one to suggest. And this uh, has barely been about the Beatles, but more about a philosophical understanding of the Beatles. And uh, I guess that's what we're. We're also here to talk about. But yeah, Rubber Soul and Abbey, <laughs> Abbey Road. Back to Rubber Soul. Um, yeah, and, and uh, but Rubber Soul also represents an evolution in style because um, it, uh, it featured the first ever Beatles song about not, that wasn't about romantic love. Uh, every Beatles song up to that point had been about, oh, you're a lady and I want you. You're a lady and you're a girl. And... Uh, <laughs> 
the this uh, Rubber Soul was the first album to feature no. It featured Nowhere Man, which is about John Lennon's isolation. Which, of course, I understood as a child from the Yellow Submarine movie is about being a furry little another queer coded guy, <laughs> Jeremy Allen Boob. You know, <laughs> Jeremy Hillary Boob, uh, PhD. I don't know. I said Jeremy Allen Boob. Uh, Jeremy Hillary Boob. Uh, uh, another another gay character in the Beatles <laughs> lineup of gay characters. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I thought he was the nowhere man, but of course, you know, uh, he is a representation of this sort of academic isolation that I think, uh, John Lennon was sort of getting at, but you know, who doesn't feel like the nowhere man? Also just gorgeous harmonies in that fucking song, those opening harmonies, which apparently the Beatles had a really hard time doing. They were very hard to pull off live. Like you can see them in Japan and they're trying to do the nowhere man harmonies and they're sweating. Uh, in, in old stock footage of them. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I really like uh, the fuzz guitar on Think For Yourself and sort of that groovy mid-60s bongos quality of it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, fucking Drive My Car, which I loved as a kid because I would always go beep, 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 beep. Yeah, good at Paul McCartney. He writes songs that a six-year-old can understand, and I still understand them, and I still love them deeply. Uh, for some reason, even even though they have this sort of childlike quality, they they don't, um, you know, they don't uh, seem juvenile. They seem like something that I can still enjoy as an adult for whatever reason. It had Norwegian wood, which I was too young to understand what that was about. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, that had a sitar in it. They were moving on an instrumentation. They were gone with the days of just the old guitar rhythm section setup, and now they had instruments from the mysterious East. <laughs> I should also, I don't know if there's ever been talk about it. Um, I don't know how much scholarship I, I should look in. I'm sure there's plenty of been written on it, but I, I wonder if there's criticism of sort of a colonial aspect to George Harrison's love of India. I, I think there hasn't been because... In all, from all evidence, it seems like a scholarship was genuine and deeply felt, and you know, not a sort of exploratory in a exploitative way, but uh, one in a, in like a deeply curious way. And you know, the sort of the Indian influenced Beatles songs fucking slap. They're fucking great. I'm sorry, you know, within you, without you, you know, uh, love you too. They're fucking cool. The inner light, sure, I'll cape for the inner light. It's good. Without going out of my door, I can know all ways of heaven. I believe this. I sit on my couch and listen to the Beatles, and now I know all ways of heaven. The farther one travels, the less one knows. The perfect song for the couch potato. I, I'm sure there's deeper meaning to that, but, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, whatever else it enhanced the music and sort of it definitely got me interested in Indian music although not really I'm sure the only guy I can name is Ravi Shankar but he got me interested in Ravi Shankar and then Ravi Shankar's wonderful daughter Nora, Nora Jones which is yeah funny um but uh uh yeah i don't know i can't I, I if i wanted to be thorough i could talk to an actual indian person and see how they felt an actual sitar master and see how they felt but I, i'm not doing that because i don't work very hard at this i'm just rambling about the goddamn beatles because that's what i've chosen to do today but uh yeah rubber soul rubber goddamn soul of course it has run for your life if you can <laughs> little girl 
it's a great song you know i'm sorry it's it's got a, it's got a real rhythm to it you know it's got uh, it's also got uh in my life you know uh, talk about you know the childhood sentiment emotional memories looking back the wistful past the wistful past of of being english you know um but it's not just being english i think you know we all at times feel like the english which is a terrible thing to admit but you know i think we all are at some point just staring out at a little gray background wishing we were in somewhere brighter and imagining that world and then aggrandizing our our few bright memories into these big events you know that comprise this world of fantastical creatures and characters in our mind and so yeah i think uh, that is that is sort of the quality to the beatles that uh i really more than anything else it is that fantasy quality uh other bands you know are not about fantasy some bands are about acquainting you more with reality in a certain way or uh, uh, that's sort of what punk ethos was in a lot of ways it's like we're trying to escape that uh i i guess you know with what punk was a reaction to more than a lot of other genres was prog rock right which was about sort of too much of this fantasy um but you know the ramones were obviously named for paul mccartney they were named for the fake name that paul mccartney used in germany so and they loved the fucking beatles they loved all that girl group music which is what they based their sound heavily on which is at the end of the day still a type of fantasy but um i guess more i guess more appropriate than fantasy is sort of whimsy sort of the escape from the mundane from the gray into like a, a world that is sort of more flamboyant so you know how could i not like it as a young theatrical queer it's it's young and there's there's this one of the gay aspects of the talking about the gay beatles a lot but there were a lot of queerness around it. there was ryan epstein of course billy preston was gay and you know he didn't i don't think i don't know if he came out in his lifetime it was sad if he didn't but uh but of course everyone knows that the beatles jacked off they jailed in front of each other in hamburg because you know they were they were just mad out of their minds they were mad lads on speed at the time and they were just jailing in front of john we have to jo in, in front of each other paul i'm jailing as fast as possible i don't know why i i find it funny the using that terminology i don't know what they call it. we have to wank we've got to do some wanking in hamburg we call it Wankberg because of how much we're wanking. We're on Preludin. We're taking all these prelies, so we're just staying up for eight hours a day. We're playing songs for nine hours of it, and then we're wanking for the other nine. <laughs> we're J-O-ing for the other nine. <laughs> um, but I also think, you know, there is a sort of a homo... Speaking of the early Hamburg days, there is a very homoerotic subtext to Stu Sutcliffe and John Lennon's relationship. Uh, you know, I think part of why John Lennon was also so fucked up is he felt responsible for Stu Sutcliffe's deaths, de- death, you know, one story about Stu Sutcliffe, he was a guy that played with them in Hamburg, sort of a, a brilliant visual artist, but less obvious uh, musical charisma than the other fellas, and he sort of fell by the wayside and sort of quit the band and then died of like, I forget what it was, it was like a hemorrhage or an am- aneurysm or something like that, um, 
but uh, I think it was from an injury that he had sustained while they were out, like kicking the shit out of people in Hamburg. They were they were going out like just trying to like raise heck and stop trouble because they were you know no good. They were no good fucking teens high on speed, and uh, they, they were looking to start shit. And then Stu, Stu Sutcliffe retained an injury from that that may have had something to do with his death, which I'm sure weighed on John Lennon. Um, but every artist, you know, there's a lot of great artists who have deaths weigh on them, you know, and Kanye and his mom, <laughs> yeah, as, and in comparison. And I think um, it's weird when you become someone like the Beatles or Kanye because then these become the uh, these... Uh, this is just, you know, normal, mundane, bullshit stuff in your life, but it somehow becomes part of this greater mythology that you've cultivated about yourself, which is... Uh, sort of strange and you know something that the Beatles I think to their credit shied away from if you've seen the get back documentary um for being the most famous fucking people in the fucking world uh they had a lot of humility and they didn't didn't seem like they really considered themselves to be the best musicians uh, of all time they had a lot of respect for uh, what other people were doing they were like, oh did you hear what Clapton was doing. I mean, I sort of disrespect their love of Eric Clapton. I don't understand why they love Eric Clapton. No, Eric Clapton's fine. There were some good. There's some good Clapton tunes. I mean, I always liked who was in his band. Who else was in it? I mean, I like Cream more for Jack Bruce and uh, Ginger Baker than uh, Eric Clapton. But you know, they 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 had a lot of humility. They liked Tina Turner. They were all always given props to you know people they thought were great. Um, and. Uh, so I, you know, I think that's also a quality of sort of, it made them at least, you know, George and Ringo and Paul sort of eminently likable more than John Lennon, who seemed, whose fame and whose sort of aggression and his, his obvious problems dealing with his mother's death at an early age and uh, really affected him throughout his, his life. Uh, and, you know, just also another thing that colors the Beatles, which colors all the baby boomer English ba uh, bands of that generation, is the fucking war. You know, of course, you know, uh, this sort of treacly fantasy sentiment was po poised for this post-war attempt uh, of awareness of peace. You know, you had just been raised by a generation of people who were traumatized, who had seen the, the most inhuman things, you know, imaginable. And, you know, you're carrying all that weight from it. Boy, you're going to carry that weight a long time. Um, and sort of, I think, that necessary escape into fantasy. And, you know, as something John Lennon and the rest of the, and Ringo and everybody said, peace, 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 you know, because they were born during bombing raids, you know. they Their early childhoods and their lives were utterly connected to this sadness and grief and death that uh, was part of this uh, ongoing uh, national tragedy. And, you know, that's, you know, the, the, uh, the treacliness of the English is only met by their, their deep depression and their deep sadness and their melancholy, you know, fucking Radiohead and shit. So uh, the other, the, I guess I also want to talk about Abbey Road, uh, I've said my piece about Rubber Soul. If I had to choose one which I like more, it's probably uh, Abbey Road. With Rubber Soul is a very close se second, but I, um, I just uh, Abbey Road is the one I've listened to the most. It's the one where I, I just love all the songs deeply in, in it. It's the one where 
you know, as a child, before I, I settle on Paul as an adult, uh, I, Ringo, of course, was my favorite Beatle because he's the Beatle you understand as a child. He was poised as the protagonist Beatle. And, you know, now is a good time to talk about Ringo. Ringo is very... People want to downplay the contributions of Ringo. Let me tell you, Buster, the Beatles wouldn't have been any fucking where without Ringo because what the Beatles were... Uh, not, they were more than just a band. They were these media figures. They were these uh, sort of the, the, these public characters. And there was no one that embodied that more than Ringo. He by far got the most fan mail. He was the star of all the movies. He was, uh, the plots always hindered around Ringo and Hard Day's Night. Oh no, Ringo has left the building because he's been depressed by Paul's grandfather and we need to find Ringo. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's the protagonist of Help. They want to cut off Ringo's fingers. He's the protagonist of Yellow Submarine. He's the first one you're introduced to. And also, he's a necessary figure in the band because you have these three sort of these otherworldly fantastical songwriters. And then you have Ringo, who's the normal one. He's you. He's your self-insert character in The Beatles. He's like if you got to be in The Beatles. And that's why he's important. Because, you know, without that grounding figure, without that guy in there, then it just becomes three people who are sort of relatable, but will never be as relatable as Ringo, who during their trips to India, you know, brought Heinz baked beans with him because he's such a little creature of comedy, just like us. He's short, just like me. Um, so that's, as a kid, I liked Ringo for that reason. Because um, he was just poised as the protagonist beetle. And I guess, um, you know, they initially got their foot in the door because he, uh, when he replaced Pete Best, he was the by far the most famous out of all of them because he had played in the local outfit Rory Storm in the Hurricanes. And uh, so everyone knew about fucking Ringo. And he had already cultivated this sort of character. He wore his fucking rings. He's this sort of cowboy guy. He was this sickly child that gained confidence from obtaining this, this country-ass cowboy persona, which is funny for an Englishman, you know, it's a, oh, I'm the English cowboy. <laughs> you know, it's funny thinking of an English. Who wants an English cowboy, you know? And that's how you achieve your powers, this worship of these American Western figures, which is, a, you know, a big part of the, the Beatles canon as well. Um, so, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I really loved Octopus's Garden as a kid. You know, that was probably my favorite Beatles song as a child. And then, you know, over the course of time, I uh, uh, had a different favorite Beatles song. I, I think if I had to choose a favorite Beatles song, it's got to be Tomorrow Never Knows, right? That's like the best fucking song ever. You know, so way, so like fucking ahead of their time and all that shit. Talk about all the Beatles sound collages. That is the one. That is the one that everybody loves, you know. It's hard, you need to defend Revolution 9 or only a Northern song. Nobody needs to defend Tomorrow Never Knows. It's just self-evidently the best fucking song of all time. The fucking drums, and that's Ringo drumming too. People didn't say Ringo was a good drummer. That's him drumming. Uh, th those fucking iconic drums, that's him. Um, uh, you know, the, the fucking, the, the bird sounds, the seagull noises, the reverse noises, the... The droning, the the sort of cool melody, the distortion used over the voice, you know, it's fucking. Tomorrow never knows is clearly the uh, like the fucking best. Also, paperback writer. To, the those are like uh, my favorite Lennon song is Tomorrow Never Knows. My favorite McCartney song is Paperback Writer because it's just 
It's it's a punk song. It's like a little driving ass punk song. You know, it's got that energy to it. Uh, my favorite George Harrison song. Uh, this is gonna come out of uh, left field. Uh, but I really like old brown shoe <laughs> i think that people don't like that one that's a very overlooked beatles song but i just really love that middle part it was uh that little uh, guitar break in the middle i think is so fucking cool ah that's so good that's so fucking good george harrison you were very good at guitar people people try and overlook your guitar accomplishments but you were very good at guitar <laughs> i guess people don't overlook it's hard to it's hard to overrate. It's hard to underrate or overrate the Beatles. They're rated. I think they're 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 rated pretty effectively. They're they're pretty much known in the canon. I don't need to defend anything about them, but I still feel like I have to because I committed to talking about this for an hour, <laughs> or I guess more than an hour at this point. So what was the point of all this Beatles talk? Uh, nothing. Just to say that I love them and. There was something about, I think that that sort of melancholic treacliness, which after World War II just made sense to the world somehow, you know that sort of call for that escape into fantasy, which also sort of defined the reality of the the boomer overindulgence, boomer hippie overindulgence. But I think you know that's why it was popular and sort of remains into popular because of that sort of hopeless desire for a peace that can never really exist so you're always grasping at these ghosts of fantasy like mean mr mustard or you know uh the pretty nurses selling poppies from the tray that's what i like about the beatles and i hope you like the beatles too because they're good